How you doing, bro? I'm great, thank you very well. How are you? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. How was your week? It's it's been a busy week. Um, busier than I hoped for. I, I wanted a relaxing week. Um, one of the biggest challenges wasn't a business challenge. It's around potty training. That's the <laughs> life of um, There've been a, a few missed opportunities, to say the least. Are we talking um, missed opportunities or missed toilet bowls? Is it what's going both, on? Both. Both. Oh, oh god. Both. But we're we're getting there. We're getting there. How, how are you? I'm not bad. Same with me. It's been a challenging week. Uh, some people at work have been furloughed, which isn't easy, especially when their workload hasn't been taken away. It's just been passed on to others. Mm. So managing that. But I'm still trying to make the most of this period. I've started writing a cookbook, which is interesting. Awesome. Yeah, I just, awesome. I just figured I'm cooking two meals a day, at least every day. So I might as well just start documenting some of them, especially now that we're in quarantine season. Because the thing I'm noticing is that if I eat the way I usually eat, then I'm just going to gain weight or at least get less lean because I'm not doing the amount of activity that I'm used to. So I'm looking at low carb meals, but also I don't want to eat food that's going to make me want to kill myself. So I'm looking at trying to make it interesting, tasty, and I thought, you know, perfect time to document this process. You know, I find that fascinating because at times I think that there's this somewhat spiritual umbilical cord between the two of us. Talk to me. Um, because last week I started that process um, very reluctantly. So still talking about you, um, have you got a, a name or a title yet? I'm working on titles. My my working title right now is called Quarantine Cooking. Quarantine Cooking. I like it. I like it. Well, what about you? A few months ago, several months ago, um, I get I got the almost inkling that the urge to write a book titled a book in education titled "They Can But They Choose Not To." Talk to me. And the the premise is that all children can with an asterisk, but they choose not to. Mm. Um, and you find this often in the classroom where they are able to do it depending upon the person in front of them, depending upon the strategies being used, but oftentimes they choose not to. Um, and it's, in essence, a book just sharing strategies to break down those barriers. Um, there's a huge preface at the beginning which states that and acknowledges that there are some pupils with underlying medical conditions which hinders their ability to attain and progress at the same speed as others. However, on the large part, most pupils can, but they choose not to. Um, so I just find it fascinating that you're going through that process. Um, I'm hating it because I really don't want to do it, yeah. but I know that it's something which I really should do gradually. So I think maybe sometime in the future we'll spend time talking about the discipline required to write a book because it's very odd. Yes. It's very odd. And I'm, I'm listening to some very capable authors. One in particular is a guy called uh, Neil Gaiman. If you've uh, seen the TV show American Gods, uh, okay. Neil, Neil Gaiman is the one who wrote the books that, which inspired the TV show. And... He's, he talks about the fact that he hates writing. He's an author. He's been an author for years and years and years, and he hates it. He also wrote one of my favourite books called uh, The Graveyard Book. 
um, really interesting book, which is uh, a it, it seems like a children's book, but when you when when you really dig into the content, it's not for for kids. It's adults, but he's a very capable author. He just hates the process, and I think there's a lot of lessons around discipline and. Um, just focus that you can gain from actually going through the process of writing a book. Definitely. I think it's something which I need to tune into because I'm being faced with that right now. Um, it's very easy to put it off as that additional thing which you are doing, but it's not actually necessary. Um, and I love the concept. I love the concept. You can, but you choose not to. It's yeah. not something which is exclusive to children. It's something which I encounter on a regular basis with adults as well. As somebody from a STEM background, the thing that really uh, frustrates me is when I meet somebody who tells me that they don't do maths. Um, and some people in this day and age almost see it as a badge of honour. No, 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 maths, not for me. Uh, and my, my retort is always, well, you're doing maths. Whether you realise it or not, we're doing maths every day. If you can read the time, if you can tell time, you're doing math. Right. So it's it's interesting to understand that from a, a, a young person's perspective because that's where it all starts. And if you start putting those barriers up as a young person, the idea of I can't do something, I can't do something, how does that then cement in future life when you're an adult? It's fascinating because if you... If you know the latest time that you can get out of bed to get to school or work on time, you are you are doing maths. You're doing maths. <laughs> um, yeah, and definitely. At some point, we can have a a whole session on the process of doing that and why that's so essential, and also the format. Because I'm really thinking about the format of what the book's going to be, because in some respects, half of it's almost like a comic book, not necessarily because of who it's about, i.e., pupils. But who it's for, i.e. teachers. I want this to be something which is very visual mm. and easy to read for the busy or the experienced at being busy teacher. Mm. There's there's a lot of thoughts that are going through my mind right now, and I'm thinking let's let's have that discussion offline. Definitely. Expensive lessons. Welcome to the latest episode of Expensive Lessons. What are we on now? Episode four? Episode four. How can we? I, I really be, enjoyed the last three. I really have, but how can we be on episode four and I'm already losing count of what episode we're on? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I've loved what we've we've done. Um, I've loved the interaction, the engagement. It's been a great conversation starter. That's the thing that I think I've loved about it the most. The conversations that I've had around this one hour, one and a half hour podcast uh, have, have been so so deep so interesting and i'm looking forward to having some more definitely definitely i think it's it's forced us to reflect in a way which we might not always need to i think that is invaluable in this day and age um just to have this as a catalog and then to have other people unpick it and challenge it that's essential yeah and I would almost say this not just to, to you, but to anybody listening at the moment, which is I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm a student. And this wasn't set up simply for me and Afalabi to disseminate our knowledge uh, from a pedestal. This is me sharing bits of information that I might listen back to in five, ten years and say, what was I talking about? Yeah. 
what was yeah. I? I I didn't know. I didn't know. I was yeah. I was so uh, naive back then. But to document it at a time when it's so easy to do, it, I think is so vital because this is how your your ideas evolve, transform, but also get spread. So yeah, yeah. the the process in itself is something I wish I started a long time ago. Agreed. Um, we've got an interesting one today. We're going to be talking about uh, a topic which is dear to both of our hearts. Um, but before that, before we get into that, I think I'd like to answer some of the questions that we received from last week. Yes. So thank you again for all those who are sending questions. Please do send them in. Um, they're, they're a great way of us actually refining some of the comments we mentioned previously. And just rethinking them. So the first one we're going to go to is, um, you guys mentioned more self-development books than novels. Uh, for someone delving into the world of business, would you say there's a ratio of self-development to fiction to follow? It's a really good question. So you guys mentioned more self-development books than novels. For someone delving into the world of business, would you say that there's a ratio of self-development to fiction to follow? Um, if I jump into the deep end and give my opinion on that. I do. Um, and this is a very personal response to this question. Reading can take quite a bit of time, especially if you're reading the kind of books that we're suggesting. And because of that, and um, hypothetically imagining that you are already a busy person who has got a lot on in your life, you then have to almost be hyper-selective as to what you read. Um, if, if I re reverse engineer it and imagine that this is eating, um, there's only so much you can eat in a day. So you've got to be highly selective as to what you eat to get your, your calories. In the same way, I'd say that you've got to be almost hyper-selective as to what you read. If you see books as almost fast food or fine dining, how much fine dining do you want to have? How much fast food do you want to have? Um, I love fiction books, but if I want to really develop um, characteristics around lead production business I need to spend more time around that area of my dining as opposed to just pure entertainment so for me I would say review your purpose is the purpose to really immerse yourself and to learn as much as possible if it is you want to ensure that there is a significant proportion of the time spent for reading focusing on self-development non-fiction um, however if this is something that you're just dabbling in then you might wish to make the two equally weighted. Unfortunately, I think almost all of us will go to the grave not having read all of the books that we wanted to because there are just so many really valuable books from prominent authors and from less prominent authors out there. My perspective is slightly different and I think it comes from me being a uh, scientist and I'm using that as an excuse because I'm sure a lot of scientists don't have this problem. But I grew up hating reading. Um, I wasn't encouraged to read as a child, like probably a lot of people listening to this. And the idea of sitting down and reading a book was just painful to me. I loved math. Uh, I liked textbooks where the, the information was around the physical world or physics or biology, for instance. I could delve into something like that because they had pretty pictures next to them. But the idea of reading a book with no pictures at all um, was, was really difficult for me. And it was something that I knew I had to unlearn at some stage. And 
The only way I could unlearn that was find books that I was fascinated with. And they were all fiction. They were all books that took me into a new world where I had an imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, non-fiction books just couldn't do that for me. I would try. I would sit up, maybe read a non-fiction book, and within 15 minutes I'd be asleep. So mm-hmm. for me, I I had to develop that muscle through engaging in content that just engulfed me, was fascinating. And that still to this day is fiction. So I may be misinterpreting the question, but for me, the question sounds like somebody who knows that reading nonfiction is important, but just doesn't have the will to do it. Uh, And if that is the case, then me and them are kindred spirits. But what I tend to do is I approach it from the perspective of gaining the energy to read through fiction and then using that energy to read non-fiction. So if I'm really out of practice, I'm just not in the mood to read anything, I'll read a really exhilarating um, fiction book. Last fiction book I read was the latest Orphan X story, which is around about a secret agent. Really good. And after that, I have enough energy to go and read um, non-fiction. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a book. It could be uh, the Harvard Business Review, which is which tends to be what I go off and read, or Forbes, for instance. If I'm really struggling, I would even go and listen to an audio book on Audible, because sometimes I just can't get myself into that mindset, but I know it's important. So for me, it almost tends to be a one, one-to-one. Uh, I, I'd read a non-fiction book, then I'd read a fiction book, then I'd read a non-fiction book. And I'm still not against reading graphic novels. Superman, Red Sun, the latest Spider-Man graphic novel, Batman, I'm down. Brilliant. And for whatever reason, they just invigorate me. They give me enough energy and love for reading that I can then go and focus that on reading something which is a little bit more factual and a little bit more dry. Mm. So it does sound like that person needs to almost self-assess what their relationship is with reading. Mm. If you're someone who already comes from a background of reading a lot of fiction, um, then you almost have an easier transition into non-fiction in this season because you can always go back. It's not one or the other. It's not natural versus weave. Um, it's an opportunity for them just to almost expand their horizons. Yeah. And and I, I, that point around the relationship with reading is really key because for me, fiction feels like recreation. Whereas yes. non-fiction feels like work. I refer it to almost fast food and fine dining. I like that. Um, and in, in many respects, I enjoy fast food a lot more than fine dining. I've been to restaurants where I, I've despised everything I've paid for. Um, but, it, <laughs> but it was an experience. Yeah. And you see the check at the end and you're like, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to pay for this? Yeah. I'm not even full. Um, <laughs> And that is the relationship to reading on many occasions. Um, if I want a good meal, I'm going to go to someone's house. If I want a really enjoyable book, I'm going to go into fiction. But if I want to really learn something, I have a new experience sometimes, um, not necessarily an experience in terms of taking my mind to a new world or a new ideology, but learn a, a fact or a truth, then I might go into nonfiction. I get that. Last, last point from me around this, 
is, I don't know how you feel about this, but I have no shame whatsoever in saying I didn't finish a book. Um, there have been a few books in the last couple of years that I read the first couple of chapters and said, I'm done. Uh, I, I don't need to finish this book. Either because the content is information that has been regurgitated time and time again, and I, I get it, or it's just not interesting. Yep. It's the same as a TV show. If I'm yep. watching the first couple of episodes of a TV show and it doesn't enthrall me, it doesn't interest me, I don't need the brownie points for saying I got to the end of that book. I'm walking away. And that is the best um, analogy to share with children. Um, when you ask them, have you ever watched the first few minutes of a film and known exactly what's going to happen in the rest of the film? Most of them say yes. So that same process occurs with books. So if you choose to put the book down after the first chapter, there's, there's no crime in that. It's a good thing because it shows that you've actually got a standard or a, a taste for certain books. Agreed. Lovely. So we hope that helped. Um, second question before we go into the podcast. Uh, you, you talked about how to realise that you've gone too far with beast mode. But what are your tips for balancing beast mode with rest socialising? So what are your tips for balancing beast mode with rest and socialising? Um, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, when, I, when I first saw this question, my response was, I don't know if I'm the best person to speak to. I think I've got the balance out of whack. Uh, mm. And I'm sure there's somebody who's listening to this who can give me some, some really useful tips to help me get myself more balanced. One very practical tip that I have around balance is my diary. So I've got a digital diary, it's an app on my phone and it allows you to categorize activities. So for instance, I have a couple of categories on my phone. I've got friends and fam, I've got work, I've got personal development, I've got admin and I've got one more, which I can't remember at, the, at this time. But what what's useful there is, I know that I've color-coded these activities. So blue is work, green is friends and family, uh, red is personal development, orange is the other one, which is well-being. Um, and what happens is, as I'm setting out my week, and putting different slots in my diary, I can actually look at my week and say, there's a lot of blue there. That's all work. Mm -hmm. Green is friends and family, and there's only two or three entries of green where there's about you know, 20 entries of work. How, how many orange entries, which represents well-being, are there? How many red entries, which represents personal development? So that's a very practical thing that I do. And... <laughs> Every, I'm looking at it right now and my, my week's coming up are blue, blue, blue with a little bit of green, blue with a little bit of green. So I need to be better at it, but at least I have a good way of actually addressing or identifying when I'm out of balance. Uh, luckily, there were a couple of weeks uh, b before lockdown period where there was a lot more red and a lot more green. And I think also... It helps me understand what season I'm in. So right now I'm in a blue season for obvious reasons. We're working hard to make sure that our business stays uh, stays afloat. 
But after this period, after the season uh, ends, I intend to have a season with a lot more friends and family engagement. So that's one high level tip. And I'm going to have a think while, while, while I hear what you have to say. I think that's a very, it's a highly effective method and strategy to use. I think one that many people could adopt rather easily um, because it's extremely visual and you're able to review the day, the week and the month and see where there might need to be shifts. Um, I have not been very good at this in terms of that balance um, and thus I delegate it to other people um, informally. I delegate it to friends and family so I almost like rely on them to take me out. Um, environment changed it for me. So the moment in which I got married and had a couple kids, um, very quickly, I couldn't be in beast mode even if I wanted to at times that I might want to. So the environment shifted it away from me. Um, and I play on that. So for example, I will say to myself, I know when I get home, there's another shift for me to do. And on this occasion, it's not another shift with work or business. It's a shift with my kids. They want to roll around on the floor. And then my wife, she actually wants to have a conversation with me. Um, so I know I cannot go into beast mode with my work hat on there. So playing on your environment, for other people it might be knowing that actually if I go to see that friend or that relative, I, I'm not going to want to work. So just making a conscious effort to do that, putting yourself in positions where it will force you to remove yourself from the ability from working. That's what works for me. I really like that. And it's it's highlighted a couple of ideas in my head, which I think I should try and implement today. One is around scheduling at least one call a week with a friend you haven't caught up with in a while, mm. just to see how they're doing, because you'll never regret it. That's the thing. I never regret catching up with friends, even if it's for an hour or an hour and a half just to have a chat. That is is an easy thing to, to implement starting tomorrow. One hour a week where I catch up with somebody who I haven't spoken to in a while. The other thing that I think would be really useful to, to do at, at this time is in a similar vein, commit to doing one thing that you enjoy uh, as, as, a, as a treat to yourself a week. Now, yeah. this can be, when, when we get out of the, the, the current lockdown period, this can be getting a massage, this could be getting a pedicure or manicure, this could be going out to dinner by yourself and in, in, enjoying it, going to the cinema by yourself. But once a week, I've got a play account, where I store um, my, my money. So my Monzo card, what it does is every time I pay for something on Monzo, it rounds up the cost to the nearest pound and that extra amount gets put into a, a, a separate pot. Yeah. Now that builds up over the course of a, of a month. And that's enough money for me to do one thing nice, whether it's get a massage, get a uh, a nice meal. I don't do it. I should. But I, I think that's another thing that I could action. Once a month, I'm going to call. Um, sorry, once a week, I'm going to call a friend that I haven't caught up with in a while. And at least once a month, I think I'll just pamper myself, do something nice. A smart move. 
We don't treat ourselves enough. We, we should. We deserve it. Well, this is the problem, and not to derail the conversation too much, but I don't think that we feel like we deserve it. Mm. I think one of the reasons why Beast Mode lasts so long is because Ooh. we punish ourselves. We want to achieve more and more and more. And if we haven't achieved all of our goals, then we don't deserve a treat. We don't deserve a break. Uh, so I think it's about changing that mindset a little bit and realising that you're on a journey. And if you don't stop and take a breather, you're eventually going to pass out. Definitely. It was in the last episode when we were speaking about beast mode and execution that the natural progression was on building the team. Yeah. From what you just said... There is a future episode on the poverty mindset mm. because it is possible for you to be highly successful and not to feel like you are. It is possible for you to be highly successful and not to treat yourself with the level of respect that you actually treat others. And I think that is a formula for failure long term. So I think that's something worth us discussing, whether online or offline, because it's it will undo all that has been done. Yeah. And that, that's something that I, I notice in highly effective people, successful people. A lot of them are unable to actually appreciate their success. And part of that is because they live in the future. They're looking at the next, the next accomplishment. And I'm talking about myself here. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other part of it is they just, their standards are so high that they're unable to give themselves a pat on the back and say, I was really good. I was fantastic there. Mm. But yeah, uh, we, we could definitely delve into that. But I think we could speak about poverty mindset and make that an entire podcast. Uh, but but this does allow us to talk about something that we, we mentioned we were going to talk about last week, which was building a team and uh, yes. part of, part of uh, accepting that that balance is by realizing that you can't do it all yourself and bringing people in sharing your vision and having them execute on your behalf but i want to start off with a cautionary tale um <laughs> afalabi you you wanted to tell me about some some someone or an occasion that i think has given you nightmares it's definitely had you mumbling uh, under your breath when you yes. think when you thought I wasn't listening uh, ab yeah. about this individual. Tell tell me about tell me about when uh, when hiring when recruitment goes wrong. When recruitment goes wrong, um, when you recruit Weapon X. No, <laughs> 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 so. wait, wait, hold up. Um, so for anyone listening, before we started this podcast, we spent a, a long time trying to protect the identity of this person. And we went through so many names. Um, I, I, I started off with uh, Jerome. Um, I, think, I think you said Tinky Winky. I did. You said Powder Puff. Um, and I said, we can't use any of these names because I'm just going <laughs> to bust out laughing every time you say it. And I said, you know what? The name is just going to come when we do the podcast. So let's just let it happen. And while I was giving that intro to Afalabi, I was racking my brain like, what name can I use? What name can I use? And I couldn't think of one. So I just passed it over to you. <laughs> I love it. Weapon X. Weapon X. So you're in beast mode. 
um, you're in beast mode to the point in which you realize now that you're not actually being as effective as you were previously. You had to be in beast mode because it was the economical route. But now for you to progress, for you to scale, you have to lean on others. You need to delegate. You need to develop systems and structures. You need a team. Um, you've got to the point where you have another thinker on board, which is amazing. But you actually need a runner. You need someone on the ground who's going to deal with operations so that you're not doing that, so you can focus on high-level occasions. I made the mistake, and a mistake which I've actually made more than once, <laughs> I confess, um, of, of identifying the need for a job role and seeing an individual who could actually fulfill that job role and seeing that job as a favour to them and not necessarily a job which needs to be fulfilled. Um, it is it's possible for you to identify that, okay, there's this job description which needs to be done. You've done it yourself before. You're thinking how easy it will be. You actually see someone who could do it. You're thinking, oh, this is divine intervention. This is amazing. Um, you offer that position to them without them really going through the process of being interviewed. They've kind of already had it before being interviewed. Um, and subconsciously within the contract that you have with that person this is a favor that person will always become weapon x <laughs> you've created a monster you have created a monster um with on this occasion there were instances where um that person wouldn't be in the office um instances where i would get there and they're not there. Instances where there were so many um, minor to major errors um, on a frequent basis. And because there was that unwritten subcontract, some subconscious, this is a favor within their contracts, it just continued on and on. And it was my fault. Because in many respects, what was a business wasn't being treated like a business by myself first. And thus, I create Weapon X. Um, it's happened more than once. It's, if I actually quantify the damage, it might be depressing, so I'm not going to. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a case study which I did want to share because I can see how others can go through that process. Um, I was on a mentoring call earlier this week with uh, a lady who has her own business and I was seeing how she could fall into that trap also. So it's, it's very easy for us to do. Um, and it, it comes from a good place. You see how you can help another person. And sometimes that can work brilliantly and there are instances where it has worked well. Um, however, as we learned, that person should bring back a greater return than what you're paying them three times, for some people, 10 times as much. Um, and, and that's my brief censored Weapon X story. There are other instances which made me lose hair um, with Weapon X, but I'll just leave it there. So let's, let's talk, well, I, we're not gonna leave it there, I'm digging in. Um, <laughs> let's talk about that, that. So the ingredients that created Weapon X were the fact that they didn't get an interview, they weren't interviewed for the job, they were 
just ushered into the role. Oh, I think I think she, I think she was interviewed. There was, there, there but, yeah, okay. But she, in in essence, she had the job prior to the interview. Okay, she was interviewed, but there were no other candidates. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know when Abby mentioned previously that we will listen to this in five years' time and we'll think, "I didn't know, I didn't know. Why was I so stupid?" That's the process I'm going through right now. <laughs> just thinking about that instant. There were no other candidates for this job. It was a favor. Um. Well, this is interesting because that's the next point, which is it was a favour. Now, the dynamic there is very special because you mentioned that you were doing a favour for a person. But I guarantee you, they looked at you, someone who was stressed and busy with very little free time, and they believed that they were doing you a favour. Unfortunately. And that's a very dangerous place to be where your employee, your staff member thinks that they're helping you out. You Mm. need them. Mm. And I I think one of the other recipes or or ingredients uh, in in the Weapon X formula is when errors, purposeful errors, are not punished. Yeah. Performance management. Absolutely. Where, where was the performance management? As, as someone who comes from an environment where performance management is everything, um, it, I didn't implement it. And it's, it's quite ironic. Um, there was no performance management. This was a very laissez-faire agreement. And thus, accountability wasn't there. But and, Sorry, go ahead. And I think on that instance... Weapon X played on my character. So Weapon X will always play on your character. If you're a hothead, Weapon X might make you feel like you're suddenly becoming um, irrational. I'm not a hothead. I'm I'm rather patient. But because of my patience, um, Weapon X forced me to internalise and to take on the burden of all of her errors. (laughs) Get it out, get it out. This this is therapy. This is therapy. Um, so one, one thing that I think is a trap that a lot of small business owners can fall into is the relief that you feel when you finally bring somebody on to take on some of your burden and the fear you feel at going back to that. So you don't want to necessarily sack this person because you know that even if they're incompetent, they are taking some of the load off your plate and you got yeah. used to having a lighter load. So yes. now the, f- the fear is around, I don't want to go back to when I was doing all of this by myself. The amount of times, and this is out of character, the amount of times I called you to have conversations which I should have been having with her was ridiculous. Um, I-, I remember listening to... T.D. Jakes once, a bishop in, a, in America, and he said that he, he sleeps better when he makes a good recruit, or he, he sleeps better when there is a good recruitment in his organisation. And I thought, wow, he, if he can say that, this is, this is something significant and relevant for all of us. Br- brother, you don't, you don't need to, to, to say that to me. I felt that firsthand. Um, honestly, sometimes there there have been instances where we have recruited two individuals to take on a challenge, 
that has been difficult and I have slept like a insomniac, hardly any sleep whatsoever. Right. And they've been the same instance where I've, I've removed those two individuals and replaced them with one competent person and yes. slept like a baby. Um, it's, it's amazing how the right hire can change your mind state. It allows you to think better. It allows you to achieve more because you're not worrying about cleaning up somebody else's mistakes. But before before we move on, I, I really want to delve into how you felt at the time. So we have this situation where Weapon X is single-handedly pulling at your business seam by seam. You're slowly seeing what you've produced unravel. Your customer service, which is exemplary, is starting to have holes in it where customers are complaining about the quality of output they're complaining about the quality of customer service you're seeing your productivity decrease and you're losing money because you're paying somebody else at this time what are you feeling burn anger um like rage but all at the same time is cocooned within i have more time to do other things if I action my my um, my burns, my anger, my my rage, I destroy Weapon X and take on the mantle of what she's currently doing, which sounds like the right thing to do and it is the right thing to do. But I need you to understand that when you've gone from beast mode to having a, a another person on the front line with you, and even though that person is at sometimes shooting in the wrong direction. <laughs> She, she catches you in your knee. <laughs> and you're like, it's all right. I'm still it's marching okay. on. It's okay. It's, it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> because you're carrying less, you're... Because you're carrying less, you're inaccurately enabling that person to be inadequate. Um, and it's, it's a huge conflict of interest internally because you, you want to get rid, you know you need to get rid you're, you're going through the process of mediation where you, you mediate how things um, went wrong. You help them to see what should be done. You create templates for templates to ensure that the error doesn't occur again. You leave hoping, praying, wishing that it will not occur again. And then there's the silence. And the silence <laughs> prolongs for a little bit. And you think, you know, we've cracked it. He's shooting in the right direction. And then suddenly... <laughs> there's a Hiroshima bomb under yeah. your... And you think to yourself, how has this happened? Oh. It was like that when I got here. Wow. It's, it's, I'm actually sweating right now. <laughs> this is painful. Well, people that are listening... The aim of this discussion is so that you never feel what we felt. So we're going to talk you through some of the lessons that we've learned uh, during this very painful journey. And honestly, if you've got any input to share, then I can't wait to hear it because this is a lesson that we're still learning. Yes. The first question that I have for you, Afalabi, is how do you know that you need to recruit? How do you know it's time for you to actually 
add somebody to your team to join you in the trenches? Yes. Uh, hypothetically imagining that you are a one woman or one man band currently, um, you are a startup, you're a small business and you are producing the services yourself or producing or delivering the products yourself. There'll come a point where you will map out in terms of productivity. You will see that scalability is not possible because everything is coming through your hands, your mind. And at that point, that is when you need to bring someone else in so that you're able to elevate what you do to your highest possible function. Remember, you've incorporated, or I hope you have. This is a business and not a hobby, I hope. And thus, you are the director. You are meant to be directing operations. And for some, that means you're not actually meant to be wrapping parcels or um, dealing with every single email which comes through. There are higher functions which you should be doing. And I think that's the point. And you will know. You will feel it. And you will not respond to it. And that feeling will grow. And that feeling will become a pain, an, an actual wound within you, until you action it. Um, why do I say that you will feel it and not action it? Because you have been in beast mode for so long. And thus you know nothing else. And thus getting out of beast mode, either quitting or recruiting, will seem like you are creating harm to yourself. Both will feel the same. Quitting and getting someone else will almost feel the same because you're not doing it. Because your, your mind and your body's got so used to productivity coming from you. When really productivity needs to come from the company which you have created. Which shouldn't be you. I was the company, which was an error. There's a lot to unpack from that. And a picture came into my mind and it comes from what you mentioned about having a soldier on the front line with you, but shooting in the wrong direction. Yeah. And the, the question I have is a, uh, a rhetorical question, but it's why don't you see any generals on the front line? The reason why you don't see any generals on the front, front line is because they are too valuable and they're not valued for their skill tactically, their skill with a musket or a rifle. They're valuable for their strategic skill and their skill with a pen and paper. And if you're listening to this, you're a general. So the low value activities, being on the front line, shooting at the enemy, isn't the best use of your time. Yes. You need to be thinking big picture. And it's very difficult for a general to think big picture when he's getting bullets flying past his head. And when you're on the front lines in your business, having complaints, having customer queries, having parcels to pack, having supplier challenges all coming at you, it makes it very difficult for you to see that big picture. And it highlights something else that we talked about last week which is creativity comes from rest yes. and if you are working like an infantryman like a soldier then it's very difficult for you to get the breathing space that you need to actually impact change to to to, to make that difference or to make that that decision which leads you on a new course so i think with, with that in mind when you get to a point where you want to grow, but you know that any initiative that would lead to growth is going to be too time consuming for you to deliver, then you need to understand 
where do your priorities lie? What low value activity are you doing that you could pass on to somebody else, which would free you up to enact that high value strategic move? Definitely. So with that, Afalabi, I've got another question, which is, you're a one man band. You're about to make a decision around growth and potentially bring on one more person or maybe some more people. My question is, what roles, what positions do you need to fill as a an early founder, as a as a managing director? Lovely. That that's such a powerful question because I believe that there are two roles which need to be actioned immediately. And I'd love other people I'd love your views on this and other people's views on this to sharpen it to challenge it. Um, going with that same analogy that you are on the front line and your aim is to eventually not be on the front line, you can either do one, recruit someone who is going to think and you're actually going to remain on the front line. You can recruit someone who will think, will be behind the scenes on a strategic level thinking about um, strategy and tactics whilst for the time being you're still partially on the front line and partially in the boardroom now you might do that because actually maybe you're delivering a service and you're currently so good at that service that getting someone else at that current moment in time might not be the best move to do the service or you're so good at um, the delivery of that product that yes you could get the second option which I'm about to mention someone else to get someone else to do that for you but you know right then and there they won't be able to do that as well. So one option is recruiting a partner potentially or a thinker, a consultant, someone in that realm. Um, if we were looking at almost Myers-Briggs, I'm sure there'll be like a, a, a term for it, but someone who can consult, someone who can also direct and help you with strategy. The, the other recruit, the second or the first, depending upon your choice, will be a runner. Someone who is going to be that frontline infantry man or woman who is going to run. Um, they are going to do a lot of the dirty work which you previously did, a lot of that low-level activity which you previously did, so that you can go into the boardroom, that you can go into the war room, that you can focus solely on strategy and tactics and vision and direction, that you can ensure that you're climbing up that tree to ensure that you're actually going in the right direction rather than continuing to hack through that forest. So I mentioned two options there, um, recruitment of a thinker or recruitment of a doer. Depending upon where you are in your business and your current skill set, so that there does need to be a SWOT analysis here, you will know what you need. Um, for example, I know that with my wife's business, she really needs a thinker. Um, she, 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 what she needs is another thinker rather than another doer. There, it's very easy to get another doer. Um, the doer would add value, but it's a thinker who would really help to propel the business from where it is right now. But for others, they will think, actually, I know what needs to be done. I've got the vision, I've got the strategy, I've got the tactics. I just need someone to execute this. I need another pair of hands. I, I really like that dichotomy because Listening to that, I think you're absolutely right. I'll mention four names very quickly. Deloitte, PwC, Ernst & Young, 
KPMG. These are the big four management consultants. And what they are effectively is thinkers. And they think on behalf of the companies that employ them. So in some cases, we have FTSE uh, um, 500 companies that will employ one of these uh, entities to help them with strategy because mm. even they appreciate that they're too close. They're yes. too close to actually see the wood through the trees. So by employing a thinker, somebody who can help you navigate through a lot of the complexity is, is a great way to ensure that you're still growing. And what that does is that allows allows you to to do some self-assessment because they may they may, may direct you in a way that you don't feel comfortable, but they may see strengths in you that you don't notice. They may see weaknesses in you that you don't notice uh, and therefore provide you with insight that you would never be able to get even if you looked in a mirror. So that first approach around hiring thinkers, well, we see it in everyday life. We see it with all of the big FTSE 500 companies. So you doing it on a, on a micro level by hiring somebody who you respect or somebody who is respected in your industry is, is, is just a smart decision. Uh, one way you can do that if you don't want to hire someone full-time is start to build out your board of directors. Have a non-exec board of directors um, or a board of non-exec directors, should I say, uh, people who are employed part-time or employed a couple of hours a month and their only job is to hear your problems and to provide you with potential solutions. But the other thing that you mentioned, I think, is also key, which is if you are a thinker and you found yourself in a position where you're not able to use your mind, you need to start to identify the labour-intensive tasks that you're doing and just pass them on. Give them to that, that other person who is happy to, to, to take on those labour-intensive, those repetitive tasks and free you up to do the really valuable stuff. So, yeah, completely agree. I've got a couple questions from what you just mentioned. Um, the first one is around the recruitment of a thinker. Yeah. Um, for those listening, is it advantageous for them to recruit a thinker within their industry? Or is it irrelevant as to whether that person knows their industry or not? I think it depends on the person. So there is definitely an advantage of recruiting a thinker in an industry in that they know that industry like the back of their hand uh, and can provide you with with insights that you just don't know as somebody who might be relatively new to an industry. Um, the downside to that is somebody who's embedded in an industry is probably going to provide you with the status quo set of ideas. Yes. They, they may struggle to think innovatively or differently. The value in bringing in somebody who is able to connect the dots, somebody who is able to think what I refer to as transversally, is that they can bring insights in from a different industry and apply it to your industry in a way that nobody had considered before. Mm. Um, so, for instance, if we think about subscription models, subscription models are a great example of a business model which we are all familiar with when it comes to mobile phones. When it comes to getting a contract, 
uh, for your mobile phone, you know that you are going to be paying a monthly amount and that monthly charge is going to go towards the overall cost uh, of, of your mobile phone. Everybody's comfortable with that. But the real innovators are the ones who can see a subscription model in one industry and apply that to a completely different industry where you're not seeing it. So a good example of where we're seeing the subscription model being applied to a different industry relatively recently is fashion. So on ASOS now, if you want to buy a really expensive product, you can use a service called Klarna. And what that does is that allows you to pay a monthly fee towards the overall cost of your product. And this is a relatively new process, but it's very effective because people, um, industries or companies realize that people didn't necessarily have all the money that they needed to spend on a product. Yes. Um, a few more examples. Uh, Trunk Club is another one where now, for instance, you can get clothes delivered to your house once you pay a monthly subscription and you pick out the clothes that you want, send the clothes that you don't want back and you're only charged for the clothes that you keep. Uh, that's another iteration of the subscription model which, which works really well. So we're seeing how if you are an innovator in one industry and able to connect the dots in another industry, there's a lot of value that can be had. So that was kind of a long roundabout way, hopefully valuable insight into why it could be useful to bring somebody in from a different industry to help you address your your industry. Definitely. I think that was really, really useful. Um, shout out to Klarna. We love you guys. We love you, Klarna. Um, it, it's fascinated me in the past how you can have a executive director of Shell then go to become the executive director of McDonald's. Um, and the truth is, they're basing on leadership and strategy yes. and not necessarily their understanding of hamburgers and oil. Um, so, yes, there are definitely advantages to have someone already embedded in your, in your industry. But if you cannot find that or you're actually not looking for that, just having someone who is highly effective in their strategy and thinking in another industry is very beneficial. Which leads to my second question very quickly. You mentioned um, a board. Yeah. There are so many small businesses who do not wait who do not create a board, um, even a board including non-executive directors, until they're looking for investment. Um, why is creating a board so important? Um, I think it's the same reason why we're getting such a positive response from this podcast. Because you don't only get good ideas by staring at a piece of paper and writing it. Good ideas come from conflict and discussion and a back and forth. So if you're currently in the trenches by yourself and you haven't got anybody to bounce ideas off, then very quickly your solution could become stale. Having a board, having a room full of experts, just throwing back ideas between them is a great way to, to make sure your ideas are grounded, but also to challenge your ideas okay. as well. Yeah, so if you take a trial, for example, a trial where somebody is... Uh, accused of a crime and is currently being assessed by a panel of their peers. There's a reason why in this country we don't just have a judge preside over that, that issue. The reason, there's a reason why we have a, a jury. And the reason being is that with a jury, you're able to 
come to a common consensus around the best possible outcome or the best possible judgment. Uh, whereas one individual could be skewed by bias. Uh, one individual may have information that can change the, the, the entire uh, viewpoint of, of the room. So by having people together, you're in a great position to actually disseminate information, but also make a really educated decision. There are going to be some people listening to this right now thinking, I need a board. There's some people listening, I just need to employ someone. There's some people listening, I need a board, but can I afford one? What would you say to them? I'd say there are loads of ways to address that issue. I think the first way is to look at the future value of your business and sell the future vision of your business. If you are convinced that your business is going to be a successful one, and if you manage to convince potential board members that your business is going to be a successful one, then what you could offer is stock options, equity. So for being on my board, you actually get a share of my business. That's one really good way of doing it. Yeah. The other way is maybe a bit more informal, but it's mentoring. I really think in our community in particular, we do not take advantage of mentoring enough. We've got, we've got quite a few non-exec board members um, or unofficial non-exec board members who are just mentors because yeah. we, we continuously go to them for information and we consult them, but they also consult us when it comes to their business. So yeah. by approaching it informally, and when I say informally, just asking certain individuals, can we go for dinner? I'm paying. Can we go for a coffee? I'm paying. Uh, you know, can I give you a call? Can I send you a text message? You build up that level of uh, intimacy with these individuals, and that allows you to, to, to break bread, but also build new ideas, challenge your perspectives, and hopefully get to a really good uh, end outcome. It's very valuable. Um, and just to, to expand upon that, with what Abby's suggesting, those are instances where you're not actually, or might not necessarily be at that time, paying them immediately. So you are getting that person's input without that cash leaving if you're currently worrying about um, paying for something that you're not seeing or whether you can afford it because you're promising payment in the future. Absolutely. Uh, if, if, you, if you believe in your business and, it, and you're good at selling your value proposition, then hopefully you can get people to buy in to the future value of your business. Brilliant. Very valuable. Thank you. So we've, we've spoken a bit about when you need to recruit and we've spoken a bit about non-exec board members. We've spoken about foot soldiers, we've spoken about hiring uh, consultants effectively. But I'd like to delve into recruitment. So let's say, for instance, we're looking at hiring a foot soldier. We want to bring in somebody who can help us with the more labor-intensive activities, which will give us more time to think. What is a good process to follow in order to achieve a positive outcome now? Contact Abby. <laughs> no, all jokes aside, contact Abby. Um, you led me through this process, and it was one which 
enabled us to concretely create a job description. And it was, it was almost like a post-inner activity. Um, that was one of the iterations of it, where we first had to acknowledge and identify all the things that we wanted this person to do. So what would there be there? What would their roles and responsibilities be? What would their duties be? What would their expectations for them be? And you, it sounds very basic, but until you actually invest a good hour plus doing this, you are not going to truly refine the job role, especially if it was a role that you were doing, because you were doing it. There are so many things that you were doing that you didn't even realize you were doing. Well, let's let's delve into that because you said you know you want to identify all of the things that you want someone to do there are a couple of steps before that and the the corporate term that is that is used to describe that is jtbd job to be done what are the jobs to be done so even before we start looking at recruiting we can ask ourselves the question what needs to be done and it's very easy to determine that if you're a one man or one woman band, because all you need to do initially is write a list of <laughs> all the things you're doing. Yeah. What and write them down on separate post-it notes. Responding to customer queries, responding to customer complaints, packing parcels, um, updating the website, contacting supplier heading to the post office, write them down as separate activities on as many post-its as you need. And then the next stage is something that some people are going to be familiar with, which is draw up uh, an Eisenhower matrix. That was a bit of a mouthful, an Eisenhower matrix. And you may not have heard of it as an Eisenhower matrix. You may have heard of it as an urgency importance matrix. Mm. So it's a window with four with four boxes or quads, and uh, on the x-axis it's about urgency, and on the y-axis it highlights importance. So if you imagine it in your head, the things in the top right-hand corner are going to be really important and really urgent. So urgent means I've got to do it right now, and important means if I don't do this, my business falls apart. Now, with all of your post-its, just start placing them where you think they are. This one's important, but not urgent. This one's urgent and important. This one's urgent, but not important. And literally start um, creating that picture physically. Don't do it in your head because you'll, you'll, you'll definitely lose track. Create that picture on a canvas for you to look at. And then ask yourself, which of these jobs do I not want to do anymore? I would argue that a lot of the things in the urgent and important category, you're probably going yeah. to want to keep yourself. But what are the things in the not important and urgent box or not important and not urgent box that you can actually start passing on to other people? Um, but that's not necessarily how you create a job role. Because we also need to think about creating an exciting, interesting job. And an exciting, interesting job will include some of those urgent and important tasks. Because nobody wants to do a job which isn't urgent or isn't important. Yeah. So start asking yourself the question, 
what could I do without doing that is both urgent and important? And this is the scary bit because nobody wants to give up things that are urgent and important. But in order to engage and captivate a potential high value hire, you need to create a job role which includes some of those urgent and important tasks. And when you're writing your job description, it's there in front of you. The list of tasks are the ones that you highlighted are ones that you are happy to pass on to that individual. So I, I can't recommend that enough because first of all, you'll realize just how much you are doing as part of your business. A lot of people may be off the top of their head, think they're doing about 10 to 15 things to, to, to run their business. It can be close to 100. Yeah. So that in itself is an effective exercise. But once you've got those post-it notes on a canvas, then you can actually start pulling off the ones that you want to keep and leave the ones on that you're happy to delegate to somebody else. It's such a valuable exercise. It, it, it was the exercise which really it, it enabled me to have breathing room, enabled me to actually feel rest assured that we're getting closer to the point where I can think again. So I, I cannot stress enough how important it is to actually go through that process. Um, my, my follow-up question is the the vehicle. So there are so many different ways of getting job descriptions out there. Um, you've heard from my personal case study how I went directly to the person and that's usually the worst way of doing it. Um, what methods would you recommend in terms of actually getting your job descriptions out to the best possible candidates? Well, I wouldn't knock your approach too much because the piece of advice that I'll give to people first is highlight to friends and family that you're looking for a role. It's not bad to highlight somebody who's a friend of a friend and see if they're a good fit for your, for your business. You do want to have some distance though, just in case you need to call it quits. So highlighting uh, or identifying a close friend as a potential hire, probably not a good idea is a big risk potentially. Yep. So I would say, yes, consult friends and family, see if they know anybody who's looking for a job, but ensure that there's enough separation, which means that there are no hard feelings if they don't get a job or no hard feelings if you have to part way some, somewhere in the future. But other than that, all of the existing customer channels that you have for your business are effective channels for recruitment. So if you are advertising services on Instagram, you could also hire on Instagram. If you're advertising services on LinkedIn, you can also hire on LinkedIn. So don't be afraid to use your existing customer channels to also identify potential um, hires. The final is job posts. So yes, LinkedIn is a, a, as well as it being a social media platform, it's also a job post platform, but you have catered job post platforms like Read and Indeed, Indeed, which are designed for people looking for jobs. And I'd say some of the best hires that we've had have been from Indeed. Yeah, people definitely. who posted their CVs on Indeed and were waiting a response from us. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be against using the friends and family channel, but take the lesson that Afalabi shared, which is if you are going down a friends and family channel, 
Make sure they have a formal interview, but make sure they're also competing against others for that job. And really competing, not just um, uh, as, an, as a formality, but honestly ask yourself, is this the best person for my business? It's funny because when I was reflecting upon Weapon X, um, <laughs> I was... Um, I was remembering a story I was told and it's, um, it was about how Jesus hired his disciples mm. and the way in which each and every disciple he hired on the most part, they were all working. Um, and they weren't just working, but they actually had high profile jobs. Um, fishermen. So think about back in those days, this is a businessman who actually has fleets, actually employs people, doctors, tax collectors, um, my point being, he didn't hire people who were simply available. <laughs> As a small business, be wary of putting a tick beside someone who is simply available as a positive. Because their availability might not always be a positive. That is such a valuable piece of insight. And it's something to keep in mind, not only for business but probably also for relationships as well um i'm not going to add anything to that i think it's a really critical bit of information one one thing that we talk about quite a bit is our hiring practices and what is the best way of of hiring and potentially letting go of people and we adopted a a methodology or a uh a, a, a a statement around our hiring process, which was yeah. hire quick, fire quick. Yes. And you had a question around that, which was, is that an ethical practice? What do you think about that as an ethical practice? Do you think it's ethical to hire quick and fire quick? What does that mean? And is, is it a, an ethical practice? Please, if you're listening to this, send your views on what you think about hire quick, fire quick. Now, to contextualize this if you have gone through the entire process of creating a detailed and specific refined acute job description you have a contract which includes all of those duties and responsibilities and there is a clear probation period there higher quick higher quick fire quick can be a great way of you evaluating whether that person is a really good fit for the role and the organization why um, they have a, a fixed period um, three months six months even longer potentially to showcase who they are um, within all of those duties and roles you can then go through your performance management in terms of evaluation which is a very open process they're able to self-evaluate themselves. You're able to review that self-evaluation. You're able to come to an agreement in terms of strengths and targets for the next season, the next few months, potentially. But if you've gone through that entire process and you, and potentially that candidate also has have identified that actually this isn't the right fit for me. As that was very clear from the outset through your process of recruitment, through the job description and the duties and the probation period, you releasing that person isn't as unethical as you would feel it to be. Now, why do I say feel it to be? Um, 
startups, small businesses, many of us are coming into this either with very little history in business or very little history in business. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and thus that part of business is a part which we struggle with. It's the reason why Weapon X stayed with us considerably longer than she should have. Um, I couldn't bring myself to fire her. I couldn't bring myself to do that to her. I came up with all the excuses why it was unnecessary, even though she failed most of the categories within the job description. So if you focus on the written agreement and that this is an exchange, you're exchanging finances for their service, if you are continuing to give the finances without any disruption, but they are beginning to remove their service willingly or unwillingly um, on a repeated basis, it is only fair that you part ways so that they can find a position which is better suited to them and you're able to find an individual better suited to that position and the wider organisation and business. I think we need to change the name. I don't I don't think it is hire quick, fire quick. The more I think about it, it's hire slow, fire quick. Because yes, you get onboarded very quick, but with a long probationary period, yeah. you're not hired yet. No. You're, you're still being interviewed. And yes. after the three month probationary period, six month probationary period, at that point, we decide whether we go together now. Yes. So, yes, it's higher quick in a sense of, okay, join the team, and we are going to see you in action. Because just like dating, when you meet somebody for the first time and you go to dinner, they will rep- they will have their representative or their ambassador on show. Yep. They will show you all of the best sides of them. It's only when you're actually a year into the relationship that you realise that he snores or uh, he has a terrible sense of humour, he can't cook, he doesn't really like to shower more than (laughs) once a week. And and now you've maybe made a commitment that's a lot harder for you to get out of. Yeah. Because at the beginning, he said, I'm your dream man. So I think the suggestion is is that we open a door and you, we say, come and join. Let's work together. Let's see what you can do. But you haven't got the job yet. We are going to be observing you for a period. And somebody could keep up the pretense for a week, maybe even a month. But after three months, if that person has been using their representative or their ambassador, the cracks will start to show. Their capacity for work uh, will, will reveal itself. Definitely. And that's where it's a good point to actually say, okay, well, I've been able to re- uh, evaluate your performance and I'm in a good position to decide whether we can move forward or not. And it ties in with another question, which is contracts. As a small business owner, do you need a contract with your staff? I don't want to scream into the listeners' ears, so I'm going to whisper instead. Yes, you do. 
Now, this podcast is called Expensive Lessons for a reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you need a contract, and you don't just need a contract. You need to ensure that you are fully in agreement with every syllable in the, that contract um, for every potential outcome. And I need you to think about worst potential scenarios here. Um, so I'm, even, I'm, I'm going ahead of myself. Yes, you need a contract. Um, you want it to be legally binding. This is security for them as much as it's security for you. You want to ensure that there is a, a written agreement that you are um, agreeing to, that you're both signing, you both completely understand. And Why? let me let me just add something really very quickly to that, which is there's no such friend as there's no such thing as a gentleman's agreement when it comes to business. Don't don't ask yourself or don't um, say to yourself, oh, well, this is just a formality. We'll sign the contract later. Get started tomorrow. No, until that contract is signed, scanned and returned, you do not work for us. Yes. Because we've seen that happen. That was an expensive lesson. <laughs> that was an expensive lesson. People who said, "Oh no, I'll honor, I'll honor the uh, the terms of our contract," and as soon as things went slightly one way, then we were on the back foot. Yes. Sorry, I interrupted, but that that really hurt me. No, it's it's a, a valuable lesson. Please, 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 contracts with everything, Ev- everything, um, everything, to the point where you completely understand and stand by your contract. Now, first expensive lesson, the instances where things had almost started without contracts, error. Second expensive lesson, we've got contracts in place. We agree with the contracts in place in that current climate, but then Weapon X decides to self-implode. <laughs> now, this is not Weapon X. This is not Weapon X. This is Weapon Z. <laughs> <laughs> Weapon Z decides to implode. Now, I, I stress this because you might already have contracts and you agree with the contract, but I want you to create hypothetical situations where your employee begins to self-destruct. Now, I use self-destruct purposely because you as the business the director, you haven't actually done anything bad or wrong, but they've begun to abuse the situation explicitly um, so you want to really think about those extreme situations. Does the contract still work for you? Um, in an extreme situation where they're beginning to truly go rogue, are you tied based on the, the words which you typed out to continue to pay them for a prolonged period of time for work that they're not actually doing? It's, Just leave it there. It's, it's so key. And I think there's another side to this coin which i'll share uh, I'm, I'm trying to be as empathetic as possible here and as we're currently in a climate where a lot of people are losing their jobs business owners people who can provide employment are going to have a lot of negotiating leverage which means that we could hypothetically add a lot of clauses in our contract that's favorable to us and not favorable to the employee. Yeah, that's unethical. It's unethical and also from a strategic standpoint, very poor move. If yeah. an employee feels like they are being hard done by or they are going to be taken advantage of by their by their job, then that's exactly what it's going to be to them. It's going to be a job. 
And you can't afford to have any members of staff who look at employment with you as just a job. Because as a small business, they need to understand that their role is absolutely critical. Now, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. And for anybody who's had a job like me, the question that you're asking yourself is, how little can I do <laughs> and not get sacked? Office Olympics. Office, we, we played Office Olympics. We worked in an office. We were jumping over tables. We were playing... <laughs> We're playing basketball with crumpled up piece of paper and bins. We actually added extra difficulty with the basketball game by putting fans in the way. That's be- incredible. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. Yeah. And listen, that was the that was the aim was how can I do as little work as possible and still get paid and not lose my job? We can't afford as business owners or as small business owners to have people have that perspective. And the only way we can do that is to make sure that our contracts, our agreements and our culture is supportive of our staff. So I just want to add that caveat in there that you want to make sure that as an employer, you are protected, but you want to do your utmost to protect the employee as well, because they may not understand all of the things that may happen in the future. And that's your time to shine as an employer. One of my proudest moments in my life is being able to say that I could put an employee on maternity leave because that's not something that's easy to do. And it's also not something that many employees even expect, especially from a small business. So the fact that we could actually pay a employee while on maternity leave was something that was a great source of pride because it meant that we took an ethical stance in this instance and we were doing something that a lot of our competitors aren't willing to do. Yeah. Which makes us a good employer. The amount of companies which live on zero-hour contracts is frightening. Um, And I, I really support Abby's point of give... So Abby mentioned culture, and you want to create a culture by my bundling it of giving more. Let it be that you give so much that the culture is there that they're expected to give more as well to add value. Otherwise, everyone's trying to undercut one another, and nobody wins. Yeah. One quick point about contracts: people listening might ask themselves the question, "Where do I? How do I even go about writing a contract?" You know, I've got no history in contracts, etc. no history in law, no experience in that space, what will I do? Well, fortunately, there are a lot of resources online. One is rocketlawyer.com, which is a great resource for giving you templates for employment contracts, etc. Um, that's one way of structuring your contracts, but I would always recommend getting an employment lawyer to review your contracts. Yeah. Now, what I wouldn't want recommend at this stage is you getting an employment lawyer to write your contracts because employment lawyers can be charging upwards of four, five hundred pounds an hour. Glory. Glory be to God. In the highest. Anyway. um, Sorry. Listen, they they made a choice in life, which meant that they were charging that much. Listen, God bless them. Um, 
but you as a small business owner cannot afford to be paying for an employment lawyer to write your contracts what you can do is write the contract yourself and then get an employment lawyer to cross check it which instead of it taking eight hours it will take half an hour to an hour one interesting thing about lawyers in general is did you know lawyers charge in um increments so a lawyer charges for every six minutes of time that they spend on your case wonderful so one tenth of an hour is the smallest so if you structure your meeting effectively you can walk in there no small talk no how was your date listen put it in front of them start the timer get them to review that contract as soon as it gets to half an hour 20 minutes however much time you have budgeted whip it away take the notes and update but don't take don't don't take that for granted write the contract first and also be aware that a lawyer charges in one tenth increments of their time and therefore make sure that every minute they are spending is a productive minute because they will talk to you about your mum and dad ask you how the family is all the while that clock is ticking I need you to read three words per second. <laughs> this, this meeting starts and ends when I say so, not when I enter the room. Exactly. Um, last question about that. Good recruitment. Pay. Yes. Now, I I would definitely love to revisit in a few years' time based on what I'm about to say. I believe in paying well. Um, I believe in it and I... And I I pray and I hope that experience, more experience and time, doesn't teach me that that's a foolish ideology and mindset in the world of zero-hour contracts and minimum wage. Um, I believe in paying well because I believe that actually if you pay someone well for what they are doing, even potentially a little bit higher than what they should be paid, you are showing them a level of interest, respect and care and you are inviting them to add value to what they're doing. Um, for some of our employees, there's a bonus system which invites them to add value on a consistent basis. So what's your view on that? I agree. I agree. I think if you pay somebody well to the point, to the point where they know they are not doing you a favour, then the productive A-type personalities... Uh, in in this world will step up to the plate and overachieve or over-deliver. The one thing you don't want to get into, and we've said it already, you don't want to ever be in a situation where your employee feels like they are doing you a favour by working for you. If you're in that situation, then they've got too much leverage and it's a very dangerous position to be in. By paying well, what you're demonstrating is you are willing to invest in those individuals. Uh, There's a flip side to that, though, because if you are paying well, then you are allowed to have expectations. When you don't pay somebody well, then you don't necessarily feel as comfortable having high expectations because they can always lean on the fact of, well, if I went somewhere else, I might get paid a little bit more. Yes. But by paying somebody well in an environment like a small business, there is no excuse for you not delivering. And once again, with our uh, hire quick, fire quick or uh, hire slow, hire slow, fire quick 
methodology, if they are not performing to the standard that you expect with that high salary, then you move on and you find somebody else. I would rather feel... Um, I'd, I'd rather feel dis- disappointed that somebody I paid well had underachieved than feel guilty that somebody who was overachieving had been underpaid. Agreed. Agreed. You recently wrote in an article on LinkedIn, check out people, Abiola Onika, LinkedIn, um, about ensuring that a, a recruit is bringing back a return three times as much. Um, can, can you elaborate on that? Um, so this requires you to have a very good grasp of your numbers. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to get into it in this discussion because I think numbers, quote unquote, is a, a conversation. It's a podcast in itself. Um, and it might only be a podcast that me and you listen to because it might be so, so in the weeds <laughs> that nobody else even cares. But numbers yeah. is absolutely key for having a successful business in this day and age. A data-driven business is every business now. So yes. the question that you need to be asking yourself is how much money am I paying this person and how much is their productivity worth? And you can measure that in many ways. If, for example, you are a hair salon and you have a stylist that you are paying a salary, which we did, we paid stylists salaries as opposed to paid them on a per hour basis or a per um, a per appointment. appointment basis you should be able to determine how much value they are bringing. Now, some of the value they bring is through the hair appointment that they deliver. So you can work out how much profit is being created by that hair appointment. But also there are other aspects of value that they might bring that are harder to quantify. If that stylist is tidying up his cleaning, well, you've got to remember that if you didn't have them, you'd have to pay for a cleaner. How much would that cleaner cost? Yes. So that that contributes to the value that that stylist is bringing. Um, as, as well as that, they may provide customer, customer service. Once again, if you are having a customer service administrator doing only customer service, how much would you have to pay them in order to, to have them in post? And add up all of these things. Don't be too generous, but also don't be too um, stingy. But look at it from that perspective, which is if I was going to quantify, quantify by value how much productivity or how much um, extra profit, extra value this individual is bringing to my business, would it be more or less than what I'm paying them? Now, the problem is, is if it's even, then there's no point in having them in the per- first place. Because you have to go through a lot of difficulty to even get that person. And if all they're doing is covering their cost, then that makes no business sense. Yeah. If they are bringing in double, that sounds good. It sounds great to hear that, okay, someone is bringing in double the amount that uh, they are paid. The problem with only bringing in double is that when times are tough, double can very quickly turn to breaking even yeah when you have a slow day when business isn't as productive as as usual when for instance that individual takes two or three weeks off 
because they're on holiday, then the fact that they only brought in double the amount of value that you pay for them quickly gets dissolved and disappears. So three times, I would say, is the bare minimum for, a, a, for an employee. And as I said, there are many ways of quantifying that. And I think that's for a different different day. But clearly identify how much value by money this person is bringing to the business. And if it's not at least three times worth what they're being paid, then you need to reevaluate either what their task list is or how much they are being paid. But honestly, I think it's always down to task list and pay because I think by reshuffling people's task lists and getting them to focus on the high value opportunities or the high value activities as opposed to the low value activities, you can very quickly get someone reaching that 3x uh, position. But in some places, 3x is poor. Getting three times the value isn't great. You need to be aiming for 10 times. So you also need to be aware of your industry and your profit margins. If you're in an environment with very low margins, um, a business with very low profit margins, you want to be bringing on staff members who are 10x in their productivity. So a, a lot of it is down to the business that, you, uh, that, that you're involved in. But ultimately, it's down to how much productivity um, in in monetary terms are they adding to the business? Very valuable. Very, very valuable. Thank you. So that leads to an interesting question around how do you know that your recruitment has been a success? And we've talked maybe about something which is very quantifiable which is okay well are they bringing in 10 times or three times the value uh that i'm paying for them i think that's one way that you know that they're a success if they're not then you need to reevaluate. in your view are there any other examples any other cases that for you identify success i think there are um and i think here we can look at soft and hard data so the 3x, the potential 10x, that's, that's hard data and it's extremely important and definitely go by that first and foremost. But then there are instances of soft data where you might start to think about the, the way in which that individual has embedded into the organization, the company and the culture. Um, there are instances where you might have someone who is 3xing, but actually they are um, a hindrance to maybe productivity elsewhere. They're... Um, there's friction between them and other people, maybe within the business. Um, they don't necessarily have the emotional intelligence or the soft skills, which really ensure that they're a great recruit. You might still keep them because they're, product, they're, they're productive and you might manage their interaction with others. But these are things which you really want to think about. Culture, how are they embedding? Are they someone who they might work in the office or wherever the location is, but you actually be happy for them to come to your home? It's a, it's a bizarre question, but would you be happy for them to come to your home? Would you be happy for them to pick up your child? Would you be happy for them to um, go to your wedding, hypothetically? And have they ingratiated themselves so much so that you like them more than just an employee? And if you can say yes to some of those things, then you actually have someone who is of great value because they will help to carry the business. They're still an employee and you don't want to blur the lines too much, but you've begun to invest in them as much as a person as they are an employee. I agree. And I do want to add to that though, that 
the term like is very subjective. Mm. There are members of staff that I will never go to the cinema with, but I respect their work ethic and I respect what they do for the business. Yeah. And I think that's something I would just want to caveat because yes, absolutely there's trust, which is absolute, which is key. You need to have trust with these individuals, but you don't necessarily need to be best friends with them. And in some cases, some of the people who you work with may be very adversarial. You may always be going um, back and forth with conflicting ideas. And that may be absolutely what your business needs to be successful. I think it's a, it's a valid point and it's needed. Um, it's, it's, it's reviewing their, their highest purpose. What, what are they actually there for? And are they adding value beyond that? Um, are they going to the point of thinking about how you can improve your processes? Are they going over and above their job description? So we, we've got an instance um, of an employee who at times troubleshoots, at times cleans up on instances which we haven't noticed. And that's brilliant because she doesn't need to have someone watching over her shoulder. If you're employing someone who only works when you're there, it's a problem, even if they're 3Xing. Um, they, they need to be self-sufficient. They need to be a problem solver. Um, do they solve problems? I think we were speaking about this offline and how one of the most important characteristics of any individual of all of us is our ability to problem solve. Can they do that independently? Do they have that level of in, in, initiative and leadership to do it? You, you've, you're, you're a school teacher, so you've probably heard the, the saying, um, there's no such thing as a bad student, only bad teachers. Oh, yes, I have. Is, is it, what would you say to the statement, there's no such thing as a bad employee, only bad managers? I would say that it's it's clickbait because it's not true. Um, if we if we go back to the book, um, they can but they choose not to. There, and if we apply that to employees, there are instances where you have those who can, but they're actively choosing not to, and that's not necessarily because of the way they're being monitored by a manager or leader. That might not necessarily be the case in terms of the way they're being micromanaged. That might not necessarily be the case in terms of the way they're being encouraged, promoted, rewarded, incentivized. There are just some individuals and some instances where this, is, um, this isn't an exchange that they've already quantified, that they are going to give 30 and you're going to give 70. They're going to try to do as little as possible. Um, and in those instances, if you have them you can make them work for a time, but they're always going to be a potential loss. Yes, management and leadership are crucial. You can turn around individuals, you can inspire, you can cultivate a greater engagement and, 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 and review their personal interests to feed that and to grow them as a person. But the individual is still an important factor. Leadership is everything, but the individual cannot be ignored. I've been a bad employee. Um, so that, that, that's how I know that that statement isn't true because I've, been a, I've definitely been 
a bad bad employee. We were just talking about Office Olympics. Um, so that answers that question for me. What I would say is that a bad manager uh, has an impact on how well I perform. Yes. Um, and a good manager has a even bigger impact on how well I perform. Uh, I'd say it like this. A good manager makes a bad employee good. A great manager makes a good employee amazing. I might challenge that and say... Well, talk to me. A good manager makes a bad employee better and a great manager makes a bad employee employable. Well, let's copyright one of these. <laughs> to put it on a t-shirt. I want to have one of those images with like the sunset in the background and then the quote and then our name at the bottom. Let's, <laughs> let's make it happen. Um, bro, this was... This was really in depth. It was a lot more in depth than I thought. And I think it's, it's so important. Um, many people can do beast mode with the right why, but to transition to the team, that's something which needs a scientific analysis and approach. And, and I think we've talked, we've only really scratched the surface with this conversation. There's so much more that we could delve into in terms of leadership styles, different personality types, personal strengths versus personal weaknesses. I think people might even be interested in terms of the dynamic between you and I. Mm. Um, I yeah. think this is the first podcast where there's a part two. Yeah, yeah, there's so much more that we could talk about. But we said we'd talk for an hour and it's getting close to two hours. So <laughs> we failed again. Yes, um, please let us know if this is a problem. Um, <laughs> Honestly, if it gets to a point where you're like, you know what, I like you guys, but I saw the I saw the timeline and I was I couldn't I can't do it. I'll commit to you guys. Sorry. Let we apologize. We just talked, but for those people that actually stay on to the end, um, I've got I've got a bonus bit of information for you. So well done for getting to this point. All three of you, maybe two. Um, <laughs> Mum is one of them, um, but. Somebody asked me a question around podcasts. Yes. So we, we gave our recommendations on books. And I also wanted to give recommendations around podcasts because this time for me, I've really been just delving into a lot of very interesting business podcasts that have fed my mind. Last week, you heard me mention Business Wars. And I've got a few more podcasts that I'd like to recommend. So the first one is a podcast called Masters of Scale with Reid Hoffman. An amazing analysis of the qualities that certain businesses have that help them grow. Um, it uses a case study for each episode and literally just breaks down what they do well and also what they did, didn't do well in order to provide you with a useful takeaway about how you could apply that to your business. So that's one. Um, another one is This Week in Startups with, I'm going to get his name terribly wrong, but it's Jason Calacanis. And he is an investor. He's an angel investor, invested in over 20 different companies. He invested in Uber at the early stages. 
Um, he might have even, I believe he also invested in Netflix, but he's an investor and he talks business with a, a sense of ease and confidence that I don't hear from very many people. This week in startups and it's great because once again, he provides you with uh, business insight, but also he provides you with insight from the other perspective of I'm an investor. This is what I would invest in and this is what I wouldn't invest in and why. Um, the next one is the Tim Ferriss show. So Tim Ferriss is famous as the author of The 4-Hour Workweek, a very interesting book, which I recommend uh, you read. I think we didn't mention that book last last time, but I'd oh, recommend yeah. um, The 4-Hour Workweek. Tim Ferriss, in his podcast, every week he interviews uh, a successful person and asks them some very detailed questions, but some unassuming questions as well, and helps you to kind of delve into the mindset of an extremely successful person. Through that, I learned a lot of information about what makes successful people tick. For example, successful people tend to have a very repetitive routine. Successful people tend to have a very structured morning routine. Successful people tend to um, apply some form of meditation on a daily basis whether it's affirmation, prayer, um, gratitude, all successful people seem to apply this level of reflection to their day on a regular basis. Um, successful people care a lot about their nutrition and are very well versed in how they look how they look after their bodies. So just by talking to these people, he just seems to to pull out some really interesting gems that a lot of successful people have in common. Um, and you'll ask it in a very unassuming way, such as, what did you eat for breakfast? Um, so that's Tim Ferriss, uh, the Tim Ferriss show. Um, and the last one that I'll mention, oh no, there's two more. So the last two are how I built this, uh, an NPR, uh, podcast, which literally speaks to a, um, in, uh, a business owner a startup business owner or a well-established business owner in each episode and ask them to talk them through exactly how they built their business. Really interesting, really useful. Awesome. Last one, the Tony Robbins podcast. <laughs> now, I don't actually listen to this as much as I used to. I used to listen to this just religiously, but I don't remember the last time I listened to it. But that's not to say that it's not an interesting podcast because... I'll go back and listen to the same episode again yeah. and again and again. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, I'm like, this is information I need to hear. There's an episode with Tony Robbins and a guy called Jay Abraham. Fantastic episode of his podcast. I would recommend that. And if I'm recommending more, I would also recommend there's an episode with Tim Ferriss on the Tim Ferriss show and Jamie Foxx. Listen to that episode. You'd be surprised at how many gems you pull out of that episode because Jamie Foxx is one of the most successful people on the planet and he is a multi-talented individual. Yeah. And getting into the mind of somebody who is a successful recording artist, actor, producer, singer-songwriter um, yeah. is, is really interesting because the things that he takes for granted are serious gems for people like you and I. 
I could go on, but I think that's enough. And I think if anybody's listened to all of those podcasts between now and the next episode, then I salute you, boy. Wow. If you were to champion one... Um, I knew you were going to ask me this. Which one would you champion? I really do think it depends on what stage of business you're at. And I'm going to champion two. I will say... If you're, a, if you're get, just getting into business or just thinking about being an entrepreneur and want to start on that journey, listen to the Tim Ferriss show. If you want to grow your business, you have an established business and you want it to get bigger and better, listen to Masters of Scale. Perfect. So those are my two recommendations. Perfect. And that was really hard. They sound incredible. Um, they sound absolutely amazing. It must have been difficult to actually separate them. I have really enjoyed this episode. Yeah. And I, I, I genuinely feel like we haven't scratched the surface. Really not. <laughs> and it's probably the longest one. It's so nearly two hours. Honestly, we've, we've gone in. Um, I don't know what we could have removed from this. I'm sure people are going to say you guys answer you take ages to answer the questions at the beginning but this is just a conversation between me and my best friend and I'm just a le- I'm just letting other people listen to it so welcome you're welcome apologies if we rub it on this is literally what our phone conversations sound like um yep. and we'll probably get better at this we'll become more succinct as time goes on uh, <laughs> but at this- partners don't like this so this is how our phone conversations are and our partners have learned to just get used to it. Yep. But it's useful because they don't want to have these conversations with us. So some, some, somehow we have to have these conversations. I'm blessed. Bless one second. Amen. Brother, I think we can leave it there. This has been another episode of Expensive Lessons. Come on, guys, send us your questions. We really appreciate the engagement that we received this week. More engagement, please. More questions. And we will see you next week. See you next week, people. Thank you again. Peace.